Lucas on Life. Hello and welcome to Lucas on Life. It's a question that's been much on my mind lately. I have a very busy schedule and we have wall calendars in our office to show that we make arrangements for ministry two or three years ahead. I'm busy, busy, busy balancing a portfolio of different ministries, writing for Premier Christianity, radio here, speaking, coaching, executive pastor at Timberline Church in Colorado, advisor to a number of churches around the UK. Now, I say all of that not to impress, but more of a confession, really, because life for me is lived at speed. And all of that has caused me to ask the question, how available am I to God, especially if he wants me to do something different? As we're going to see, God generally uses people who specifically make themselves available to his purposes. He's looking for volunteers not conscripts. So tonight, let's think about our availability to God. We're talking about availability to God. When we study the Gospels, we see that Jesus was rather disruptive, walking into the lives of ordinary women and men and inviting them to live their lives according to a totally different kingdom-centered agenda. I discovered something about this some years ago when I met Mrs. Robinson. Mrs. Robinson was a bright, totally alive woman who giggled uncontrollably whenever Jesus was mentioned. Such was her infectious love for him. She was a lone parent with two teenage daughters, but she would soon be dead. The cancer in her, a quiet, expanding labyrinth, uncoiling itself and spreading its deadly venom every day. She did not have long. As a young pastor, I used to visit her every week, and she never failed to cheer me up. She told me her stories about her homeland, the West Indian island of St. Vincent, and laughed at the thought of dying. This was no brave face, no denial, because she knew that she was going to die, and she knew that Jesus had gone ahead of her. Her excitement about seeing him was palpable. No, pastor, I'm not worried about dying, you see, she said, but I am worried about my girls, my daughters. What will become of them? Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, she said. And then her bright eyes would cloud over and she would come back from heaven and land on earth again, really worried about her children. She would rock back and forth, crying out to God, oh, Lord, oh, Lord and I'd do my best to encourage her. Don't worry yourself now, Mrs. Robinson. Hasn't the Lord promised that if we cast our cares upon him, he would care for us? And I would open my big Bible and point to that scripture, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And she knew that scripture off by heart. But she would always look as if checking that it was still there. Week in, week out, she would laugh and she would fret, and I would quote yet another scripture every time. One day I found a scripture that talked about God looking after the widow in her plight and told Mrs. Robinson that the Lord would make sure that her daughters were cared for. She seemed assured again. I prayed, and then as I came out of the house, God whispered to me, as he often does, by asking me a really uncomfortable question. 
So then, how exactly am I going to take care of these children? I realized in a millisecond that all of my praying flowery prayers and my quoting of Bible verses could be reduced to cliches if I didn't face the issue that God was raising. I considered the possibility that God was asking Kay and me to invite these two young ladies to be part of our family when their mother passed away. We had a young child of our own and a very small house. This would mean disruption and inconvenience, and the how exactly am I going to take care of these children question just wouldn't go away. I decided to lay an impossible fleece before God. For those of us who are blessedly unfamiliar with this approach to guidance, it works like this. You ask God to fulfill a certain set of circumstances, and then, if those circumstances come to pass, you agree that this will serve as a sign that God wants you to do something. It's a very useful strategy for those who are worried that God might be asking them to go to the mission field. You can ask for an impossible fleece. Okay, Lord, I will indeed go to whichever country. If by next Wednesday, when I'm in the frozen food section of Sainsbury's, a man dressed as a leprechaun jumps out of the fish finger freezer chest, crying, come to this country and make it sharpish. If the leprechaun is carrying a yellow bassoon and has wooden Dutch clogs on his feet, then I will take this as a sign of your call and will head off to foreign shores immediately. I hit on the idea of a slightly more subdued but equally impossible fleece. I advised God that I was going to walk into our house and without any discussion or prelude would announce to Kay that I felt that we should become foster parents to these two young girls. The catch was that Kay was to say, without any deliberation or hesitation, sounds like a good idea to me. Now, my wife Kay is a thoughtful, sensible person. Impulsive is not a word that I would ever use to describe her. I walked into the house, pecked Kay on the cheek, and said, I think we should foster Mrs. Robinson's daughters. Without a moment's pause, Kay gave her response. Sounds like a good idea to me, she said. And so we did. Mrs. Robinson passed away without any concern about the future for her children, and our family became five. It was a wonderful time, although the neighbours surely wondered how we'd managed to get two black children and one white. Now, don't get the picture of the Lucas extended family as something out of the little house on the prairie. It was a learning time for all of us, not least me. But Mrs. Robinson's daughters became a very real part of our extended family. I don't recommend the fleece approach to guidance, although it works for some. But then again, I don't recommend uttering cliches, pass the buck prayers, and making excuses for doing nothing either. Beware, God is about. He may just interrupt our lives. Let's be available. I had flown to Salt Lake City to preach, and for most of the journey, I'd been pondering my sermon and couldn't settle on the right theme. After 16 hours' travel and much pondering, I was still quite sermonless. I arrived, found my hotel, and went to sleep with a heavy heart, vowing to wake early in the morning to rejoin the sermon safari and continue the hunt for the elusive talk. Five hours later, the alarm clock screamed at me. 
I couldn't for the life of me work out where on earth I was in the world. It's tough to try and discern the word of the Lord when you can't even work out your precise geographical location. I settled down to a jet-lagged prayer time, which is always dangerous, as one can never tell whether the thoughts that bounce around the weary walls of the mind are the whispers of the eternal God or the after-effects of hideous airplane food. Minutes later, I began to feel that God was actually talking to me, but I wasn't too keen on what he was saying. Just go to the service this morning and tell the people, God says, step up to the plate. The rest of the sermon will follow. Great. I'd flown 6,000 miles, endured food that bore a striking resemblance to an aerial view of a farmyard, and the congregation that had shelled out for this uncomfortable expedition are hoping that I'll bring some teaching that's of high quality. What do I have to bring? One phrase, step up to the plate, a term used in the game of baseball. I set off to the service with a heavy heart, but a sense of faith that this could turn out to be quite an adventure. I was welcomed, literally, with open arms and led into the prayer meeting. Dozens of people had forsaken the warmth of their beds that Sunday morning to come early to pray for the preacher and for the worship team. And how they prayed. They were low on spit and high on inspiration. Some of them had just returned from some high-energy revival meetings and were as high as the proverbial kite. They called on God for a mighty, Holy Spirit-endued divine encounter that would shake the rafters. And I just stood there, the recipient of much laying on of hands. I nodded my head and murmured my amens, all the time thinking about the epic body of teaching that I was carrying. Step up to the plate. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I just couldn't bring myself to go through with what I now know was God's plan. I jettisoned the plate idea, dismissing it as a byproduct of too much time spent at 36,000 feet. And so that morning, I preached a well-worn sermon, a tried and tested faithful old standby. And we did have a very good service indeed. Over a dozen people made commitments to Christ. Driving to the restaurant afterwards, I inwardly congratulated myself on dismissing the madness of the step up to the plate idea. Why, God had blessed. People had become followers of Jesus, a sure vindication of my decision, right? Wrong. Over lunch, I casually asked the minister what had been going on in the church of late. His response shook me rigid. Well, Jeff, we've been concentrated on trying to encourage people in the church to realize that everybody has gifts that they can use as members of the body of Christ. Next week, we begin a new sermon series that's designed to encourage everyone to make themselves available to God. There's quite a lot of excitement about this emphasis in the church, he smiled. I wish I'd never asked the next question, but something deep inside pushed me, already feeling that I knew the answer. So, what is the title for this upcoming sermon series, I ventured? Oh, he said, we're borrowing some baseball vocabulary. The series has been publicized under the title step up to the plate. Oh, well done me. God had very kindly blessed my alternative service, but just think how much impact might have been made if without any knowledge of the upcoming sermon series, I'd just announced the word of the Lord and then followed the Holy Spirit through what would have surely been a huge response and a very real strengthening of the faith of that church. I placed my head in my hands and groaned. 
The minister thought there was a problem with the food until I explained and apologised. Step up to the plate. What does that mean? Put simply, God was urging his people to make themselves available, to accept some responsibility, to play their part as members of his team. As I said earlier, generally speaking, the Lord uses people who want to be used. I repeat, his preference is for willing volunteers rather than begrudging conscripts. Isaiah is one example. Remember his call? The poor chap is having quite a crisis about his own naughtiness and is intent on reciting his woe is me speech endlessly. God sends an angel with a hot coal in his hand with orders to burn Isaiah's mouth with said coal. This incendiary strategy was presumably designed to silence the I'm no good speech. And then the Lord decides that there's a vacancy, a job must be filled. Now bear in mind there's only God, Isaiah and a few angels around, but God addresses Isaiah with what can only be described as a cosmic hint. Who will go? Whom shall I send? God asks. Isaiah catches the heavenly hint and offers himself for the task. He stepped up to the plate and history was changed as a result. Meanwhile, back in the restaurant, I realized the irony of my mistake. Fear had paralyzed me, and the result was that I'd ceased to be available to the Holy Spirit for the delivery of his message. I had not announced the step-up message, and my refusal to articulate it meant that I was not actually prepared to step up and step out in faith myself. I talked earlier about busyness in my life. I want to be honest. I wonder how much of my frantic activity in ministry comes under the category of my good ideas rather than the fulfillment of God's kingdom dreams. God looks for availability, not ability. He's the vine. We're the branches. We should perhaps pray like this today. God, please help me to be a branch. God is looking for us to step up to the plate, to be available. Perhaps we should take the hint. As we've been thinking about availability tonight, and as I mentioned earlier the story of Isaiah, let me finish by reading from that portion of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Perhaps as we hear Isaiah's response, that can be our declaration to God this week. 
Here am I. Send me. See you next time. Lucas on Life.